I'm Sean Graham, and what's old as news this week are rural cooperatives, a staple of rural life in Canada. The co-op for many people has come to define agriculture in Canada, not only from the business side, but also culturally. There is a vibe to the co-op or a sentimentality to a co-op that think for people from coast to coast to coast is very tightly associated with rural life and agricultural production. And the idea of the co-op, of course, comes from everybody within a community coming together to work towards a common good. It is, after all, a cooperative. And while in the modern sense of the word, we tend to think of these economic institutions. And in the modern context, we tend to think of the economic institutions like the co-op grocery store, for instance. When you look at the past, cooperative work took on many different forms in rural Canada, one of which was the cooperative work bee. So just like you would have a spelling bee and people would come together and spell, in rural Canada, you would have work bees where neighbors and members of communities would gather together to work on a specific project on one farm. So whether that was planting in the spring, raising a new barn in the summer, or helping out with the harvest in the fall, work bees were a staple for many rural Canadians and agricultural producers through the 19th and into the 20th century. And they were very much representative of the cooperative lifestyle that is very much associated with the popular imagination of rural and agricultural life. And they are the subject of a new book by Catherine Wilson entitled Be Neighbors, Cooperative Work and Rural Culture, 1830-1860, in which she explores work bees in southern Ontario and examines the purpose of the bees, how people got each other to participate, the intricacies of things like labor exchanges, as well as the culture behind these, whether it's feast, hospitality, how families were brought into the bees. Really a fascinating look at a cultural tradition that doesn't exist as much anymore. And as rural Canadian populations shrink, as urban and suburban Canada expands, both in terms of population numbers, but also physically, this is a part of the country's history that I think it's very important to remember and to appreciate the important cultural aspects of these work bees. And Catherine is probably the best person in the country to talk to about this. Her work at the University of Guelph is extensive. And if you check the show notes, she'll talk about it in the show. Some of her other projects on archiving what's going on, rural Canadian documents like diaries. It's really remarkable. And it's a treasure trove of information that she has there at the University of Guelph. And she's made outstanding use of not only in this book, but throughout her career. So I really enjoyed this conversation and I think you will as well. So let's get right to my chat with Catherine Wilson. All right. And Catherine Wilson joins me now. Catherine, how are you today? I'm just great. Thanks, Sean. Uh, Really excited to have you here to be talking about 
about the cooperative movements uh, and, of course, the book. Uh, but before we get into some of the specifics that you discuss and uh, the idea of cooperative work, rural culture, could you just give us a bit of a background? I, I think a lot of people know that the university there has this strong background in agriculture. But could you just give a, a real sense of what is the connection between rural culture, agriculture, and the university? Well, the University of Guelph here began as an agricultural college uh, in the 19th century and, and then became a, a university in uh, the 1960s, but it's still in many of the colleges, there are experts in agriculture still working there. So it's a, a really great place to do rural history. And uh, the archives at the University of Guelph have an absolutely wonderful rural heritage collection, probably the best in Canada. And um, several faculty in the College of Arts have an interest in some aspect of rural life. And so I feel very fortunate to be here and feel like my research is well supported. Which is very important. You want to be in an environment that is is supportive of, of what you're doing. And obviously, you are a big reason for a lot of the resources that are there, or certainly a contributor for a lot of the resources. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. So let's get into some of what this book and what your work is is talking about here. And subtitle of the book is Cooperative Work, as I said in the intro, and Rural Culture. Now, for a lot of people, I think, who maybe live in the city or who grew up in more urban landscapes, the co-op is a store. Right? That's how we think of it. And if you go based on, say, curling advertising in the past six months, which might be my only exposure to rural culture within the last six months, that's what we get yeah. in the cities, right, is go to the co-op and you can get what you need and it's a store and everyone comes together. That's kind of the mentality of, of at least urban people who, who I'm around when we think of what a co-op is or, or cooperative work. But could you just define then as sort of a starter here, when you're talking about cooperative work within the context of this research, obviously you're not just talking about a store. So, so what is the context of that word and what does it mean in a rural or agricultural setting that might be different from what an individual who lives in an urban setting might think of it as? Well, cooperative work is uh, when neighbors get together uh, for a specific task on someone's farm and work together like bees in a hive. And so it's a very informal kind of thing. And it's about primarily about production as opposed to uh, marketing. Then I think that's what you've been talking about are more formal cooperatives that are more aimed at marketing agricultural produce rather than producing it. And uh, this cooperative work was used for a wide variety of activities, everything from making quilts, the quilting bee, to raising barns, to harvesting crops. So when we talk about cooperative work, you mentioned the formalized or the marketing side of it with the, the stores. How much of these arrangements particularly so the book starts in the early 19th century. So if we start there, how much of this is born purely out of necessity that 
you need people to help with big projects. It takes a lot of, of strength, uh, physical strength to do things versus any sort of formality. Uh, you, you know, it is neighborly, but were these almost quid pro quo type things? Like, obviously I'll help you and you'll help me. And it's just an understood or did individuals have any sort of formal economic agreement amongst them when your research is starting? There was no formal economic agreement, though I I can say that a certain code of behavior emerged. These bees did begin out of necessity. It was almost impossible for an individual family to have the physical strength and the tools and resources, skills, for example, to know how to clear a field, to raise a barn, to raise a log house. And so they needed assistance. It took, For example, with a log house, it took 16 men to raise the logs, and there was really no other way of doing it. And so they arise out of necessity. And in working together, they eventually arrive at an understanding that if I help you, you'll help me. And it's a sort of flexible arrangement. It's voluntary. You don't have to participate. Um, It's flexible in that your labor debt might linger for months, maybe over a year, and you could repay it in a variety of ways. You might uh, return the labor at someone else's bee, or you might send team of horses to help out on their farm someday or send them a bushel of apples in apple season. So there were a variety of ways of paying back for the work. Now, you said that it was voluntary. It wasn't necessarily mandatory. How, and I'm not necessarily challenging that, but how much pressure would somebody potentially feel to participate in one of the bees? Were you at risk of becoming outcast socially uh, or potentially within the local economy uh, if you weren't an active participant? Like, what was there not obviously then mandatory, but kind of mandatory if you wanted to be seen and included as part of the community? Yes, I'd say so. I'd say it was, in a sense, mandatory. I mean, you could avoid going if there was a death in the family. But otherwise, you were to set aside your work for the day and attend cheerfully and work hard. The one way, though, that people got around this was to send a son, send a grown child, a teenager in particular. And often I find that the families that are most involved in these being networks, as I call them, are families that have a lot of children in their teens and 20s. And so that meant that the household head could attend to um, farm management that day or take a trip into town and he could send the boys in particular to do the work on a neighbor's farm. And that was very acceptable. It was a good way for the young men to learn skills and get to know the people who would be their future neighbors, most likely. Yeah, that's true, right? Because a lot of what agriculture and rural culture, again, from from someone who doesn't have nearly as much knowledge as you, the, the stereotype is that these are family farms and that they do get passed down from generation to generation and that people stay on the land. And so you want to foster that sense of community early and having the, the kids go and, and help at these events makes a lot of sense. And within that, though, 
I'm curious about the planning side of one of these bees. So if I have a farm and I'm going to host a, a threshing bee or, or whatever it is, or I'm going to raise a log cabin on my property, how much notice was given to other people? And what was the planning process like? Because again, it's not, <laughs> you know, if you, you contrast it here, now we're in 2023, you just send a group text and uh, your planning could be done in 20 minutes, right? That obviously isn't the case in rural Canada in the early part of the 19th century. So so what was that process like just in, in gathering people together and passing along the information that, okay, we're going to do this? Well, that's, that's a really good question. And I think, you know, one of the things that has really surprised me about the farm diaries that I read is that people are in and out of each other's homes and barnyards on a fairly regular basis. And so, you know, dropping by to to help with a whole variety of one-to-one kind of exchanges. And so they had lots of opportunity to speak to each other. And if they weren't able to meet each other, they would talk at church after church and make arrangements. Or um, I have examples of them just riding up and down the concession roads, asking people to come to their bee. And they'd often do that about a week beforehand. So you, you had some notice you could you could plan. Uh, yeah. And that would, you know, it's, it's not like a case of, right, so it's sunrise and someone knocks on your door like, oh, we have to do this today. Or like, oh, no, I, I so, so you did have a chance a little bit to set up your schedule so that if you're going to help somebody else, you could arrange that on your farm, you're going to be okay for the day. Yeah, you could do that. And I can imagine that they had discussions around the breakfast table too. You know, on occasion, they'd be invited to two bees on the same day. And so they must have had discussions around the table as to who would go to what. Yeah, a lot of planning there. And now we talk about the bees in, you know, you mentioned threshing, you mentioned raising a barn. What type of activities typically would these be? And was there a seasonality to it that's certainly in agricultural work, we think of the fall and the harvest time as a time where you need a lot of labor, a lot of work, uh, certainly at the start of the season too, planting season, that would take a lot of, of care. So was there a seasonality to it or were a lot of these bees more one-off projects like raising a log a cabin, something like that? Uh, or, or was there an ongoing need to hold these? There was an ongoing need for some of them. And yes, they're very seasonal. So in the winter months, there are a lot of bees, a lot of cooperative work involving the harvesting of wood. It, it made sense during the winter time to, to cut the trees down, to drag them out on the snow um, and have a, another bee to chop them into lengths and then perhaps another bee to chop them into shorter lengths suitable to putting in the fire, the, uh, the wood stove that you'd have. Come the spring, there might be uh, wool picking bees that the women attended. And as the weather got drier and before the busy planting season began, that's when they would often hold their barn raising or house raising bees. And in July, they often had the logging bees. That was pretty hot, heavy work. And that was to get that kind of work done before the busy harvest season arrived in August and September. 
Come November, with the cold weather, they often held butchering bees because they wanted to reduce the number of animals they had to winter over, and it was cold. So it was like a, you know, a refrigerator outside when when they conducted their butchering bee. And they also change over time too. So in the early 19th century, you get a lot of house raising and barn raising and logging bees as they're essentially creating the farms, creating the fields and raising the buildings. Then once you get the introduction of threshing machines and other such machinery, you get more harvest bees. They often would call in a custom operator who owned the expensive thrashing machine, and then it made a great deal of sense to call in your your neighbors so that they could haul in the sheaves on the day that the thrashing machine was at your farm and make good use of it so you didn't have to pay too much. And that does lead to an interesting question, the idea of mechanization, because the book covers 19th into the 20th century, and the idea of equipment being more readily available, if not reducing the labor, certainly changing the labor required on a farm. So how does the increased mechanization of farming and perhaps even the industrialization of farming change the nature of these bees that as you trace them through the 20th into the, or excuse me, through the 19th and into the 20th century? That's a really good question, Sean. And I think that it's generally assumed that with mechanization, cooperative work disappears. But this isn't necessarily true at all. Um, And uh, take, for example, the sewing machine. The sewing machine is introduced and then women are doing more quilting bees than ever because they can sew the patches together and then get together and actually quilt the quilt. And with the threshing machine, Prior to the threshing machine, there would just be two men with their flails threshing the grain. But with the threshing machine and these custom operators, that encouraged the bees. And with the introduction of the big steam threshers in the 1870s and 80s, they required even more men. They required about 20 men at a threshing bee. And so mechanization encouraged the bees and the bees allowed these farmers to take advantage of the latest machinery, enabling them to reduce some of their manpower, they could increase the size of their fields and produce more grain. And so, you know, they, the bees accompany mechanization and they accompany market orientation too. They're very much part of agricultural progress. It goes along with the industrialization and mechanization of other forms of production, right? whether that's factory work, shipping, whatever you want to, to look at, all of this kind of goes together. Even look at the great symbol on the West of the grain elevator, right? Those are built for the shipping side of the business. So it seems to me that mechanization, as you say, doesn't reduce labor, it changes the labor and it increases, as you say, size of farms and potentially some of the returns that are available. I'm curious to know, does that process at all change some of the cultural side of rural Canada, the the, the rural neighborly elements that you talk about in the book? Does the relationship farmer to farmer, family to family, 
is that at all changed as mechanization changes the nature of their business? Mm-hmm. To some degree, uh, just to get to the beginning of your question there, to some degree, mechanization changes the process. For example, with the threshing, whereas two men did the whole thing, with the introduction of the threshing machine, they adopt more of an assembly line arrangement in their pros- in their threshing. So the process changes there. I, I wouldn't necessarily say, though, that they become de-skilled in that they're all working closely together and sometimes they're changing positions. Um, so they're not really de-skilled. As far as mechanization and the larger culture is concerned, I would say that up until the 1950s anyway, mechanization doesn't alter the culture that much. Then we get the introduction of the combine, and that's different because the combine basically ends the bees. You don't need nearly as many men to to operate a combine. About that same time that we start to see neighboring declining, and so I think that's where the change in rural culture starts to be seen more readily. That's interesting because when you see a combine, and I've never been in a combine, but when you see pictures of combine, it looks like solitary, right? It looks, you know, it's it's one person sitting in the cab and operating the combine. And that does seem antithetical a little bit to the popular imagination of farm work, of the collectivity that, that you're talking about. Is that something that, because you mentioned the diaries, and a lot of this is based off of the, the diaries that you have, the, the Rural Diary Archive that you've put together. Is this something that, as you're tracing this change, is this something that the individuals whose diaries you're going through, are they conscious of it? Are they aware, potentially, that as the combine comes, the neighborly aspects that they had previously relied on was changing? Yes, they're aware of that. And you can see it even in an earlier time period. In the early 20th century, a lot of the mixed bees started to decline. By mixed bees, I mean apple-pairing bees and sugaring-off bees, bees that were held amongst men and women, young people in particular. And these bees got the job done quickly, but there was a tremendous social aspect to them. And those bees start to decline as young as opportunities for young people to meet and and entertain themselves increase. The number of institutions start uh, offering young people's programs and things, and the silent films are there, and a whole variety of other opportunities arise for, for young people. And so those bees decline. And you see in the farm newspapers a lament a lament that this social time is declining at the, and that there's advancing individualism and people don't care about each other so much. But at the very same time that is happening, there are more threshing bees and silo-filling bees than ever before. So many, in fact, that at one point my great-great-grandmother said, too many bees and not enough honey. <laughs> And so, you know, you can't always trust what you read in the agricultural newspapers because, you know, they want to present an interesting story and it's, and the diaries are 
generally more reliable as to what's actually happening. It does lead to the question, though, of again, the imagination. I think the popular imagination of rural culture is, is, and this is what you talk about a lot in the book, obviously, the neighborly culture. And as this transition that you're, you're discussing comes through, uh, maybe potentially overblown in the newspapers, is the idea that rural culture is one of, of neighbors, of being cooperative, is that a product of the necessity of living in a rural and agricultural community? Or are the communities such because the people are, right? I know it's a bit of a chicken and an egg type of a, a question, but is it possible to situate that? I think it's because of the necessity. Okay. You know, rural people aren't nicer than people anywhere else. This this was out of necessity. And sometimes working together did create a warm, fuzzy feeling. And, and certainly it created a sense of belonging. But it wasn't always easy to work with your neighbors. There were accidents. There was violence at these things. And I think there was a fair bit of negotiation that took place, too. And I think, you know, my, my work to some degree tries to enter into the actual workings of neighborhood and dispel some of the myths about people being friendlier in the countryside. I think it does become part of their culture and it's still there today, but it was born out of necessity. And, you know, also a lot of these people, especially in the 19th and early 20th century, you know, they're deeply religious. So they're reading their Bibles and they know they are to love their neighbor and help them. But when you read the farm diaries, you see how that was carried out in a very practical way, too, that, you know, they needed far more than just loving their neighbor to attend 10 or more bees a year. You mentioned the myths of neighborly uh, work and, and potentially, again, this is me as somebody who grew up in a very suburban environment and now lives in a city. Is that really just the the little house on a prairie view of it? And and why does that mythology persist so strongly, do you think? That's an interesting question. I think that there's often an attempt to differentiate rural and urban and, and certain stereotypes get created about urbanites being individualists and not caring about their neighbors. And, you know, I, I think that some studies on neighborhood that have emerged from urban case studies show that um, neighborhood was very important in urban areas, especially amongst poorer neighborhoods or amongst uh, widows, for example. The difference, though, with uh, rural neighborhoods is that it's a very visceral part of their life. It's a very visceral part of their daily production. And it's also a security system as well, a social security. Like when you hit hard times, you can call on your neighbors. As we're talking, you, you mentioned a few times that, of course, the diaries that you're going through reading the words that these people have written and, and the information that they have left behind. One of the things that I'm kind of curious about is the type of writing that they are leaving. Like, like what is in these diaries? Because you mentioned a lot of the 
individuals, a lot of the people who are working on farms had to start young. And one of the things about rural culture, agricultural work is it often starts when you're very young. So you don't have necessarily a formal education, yet they are running large economic enterprises as farms. So it's not that that was necessary for them to be successful. But when you go look at what is left behind in the writing, what type of material is it? And how does that necessarily evolve over time through the, the century plus that you're looking through these diaries for this book? Yeah, good question. You know, I think a lot of us think of a diary as a place where you pour out your heart and that there's lots of, you know, really interesting details. These diaries were really more like account book diaries in that, you know, they're they're written in a, a kind of short form. They'll say, hot today, went to town, uh, sold Bessie the cow, picked up a bushel of apples from so-and-so. You know, it's it's that sort of account book nature. They Sometimes they write in full sentences, but oftentimes they don't. The emphasis is on action words, came, went, did, etc. They don't usually provide much in the way of explanation or emotion in the diaries. But they're very useful because um, instead of looking inward and pouring out their innermost emotions, they're looking outward and telling you what they did that day and what everybody else in the household did and and the neighborhood and what's happening in it. So they're they're excellent for the kind of work that I wanted to do. Yeah, I, I wonder if in you know a hundred years people will be going through our like Outlook calendars. And saying, wow, there's a lot of meetings today. <laughs> and uh, here's who all the meetings were with. Because uh, I don't know if people keep notes in the same way. E- even, obviously, everyone has their own little accounting ways that they keep track of their money. Or if you have a business, obviously, you have whatever you need for payroll and, and inventory, all that kind of stuff. But it, it strikes me that so much of that is online, on clouds that might disappear. It seems to me that these diaries are really a a trove that needs to be kept, has so much information. And as you say, stuff that you might not expect to get out of what is essentially, as you say, an account book, right? Like there's personality coming through, even though there's a document that for all intents and purposes is a business book, It's interesting that, you know, I have yet to see someone who writes something in advance of the event. Hmm. Uh, We all carry around our agendas of all the things lined up in the future to do. Their writing was all uh, about what had already occurred. Very different from how we we plan our lives and uh, for sure. So one of the things that you are working on and that you have is the Rural Diary Archive. You also have the People's Archive of Rural Ontario. Uh, And when we talked, you mentioned that there's some crowdsourcing going on uh, with respect to the Rural Diary Archive. So what is that process like? And uh, what type of people would you be looking for? Potentially somebody who's listening to this is thinking, wow, I really want to get into that. And and so uh, for the Rural Diary Archive, if people wanted to get involved, uh, what does that entail and what would they be doing? Uh, well, the Rural Diary Archive, I 
I created that back in 2014. And it's um, a website where anyone for free can go in and uh, read these old diaries and also transcribe them right on the website. And uh, they can also search them. So it's a great crowdsourcing place. We have over 200 diarists from across Southern Ontario profiled on the website and thousands of pages have already been transcribed. I think we have over 200 diaries already fully transcribed. So, you know, really inspiring new research, not only amongst academics here in Canada, but also in Europe. And it's a wonderful way for people who are genealogists or local historians to get close to history in a way that they may not have done before. In my opinion, it's way more interesting than birth, deaths, and marriages because it's just like, um, you know, sitting in somebody's kitchen or I, I say that there is like walking in their footsteps or writing in their pen strokes. You know, you, you feel their daily rhythm and it's, it's uh, well, I have never felt closer to history, Sean, than I do reading these old diaries. Wow. Yeah, it's a, certainly a powerful endorsement of them and, and of the project for sure. And, and it's one of these things too, that uh, as we sit here in 2023, the percentage of the population that lives in rural settings uh, continues to decline. If you look at where I grew up, I grew up near Guelph. And when I go home, there's so many more houses now than there used to be. Things that used to be farms are now housing. Uh, and it takes me longer to get into what feels like the, the rural environs that I drove through growing up from going to town to town than it used to. So it's almost like part of what the Rural Diary Archive is doing is not just capturing these documents from the past, it's in a sense almost showing the disappearance of some of these, the, the literal disappearance of some of these places. And I'm curious, as someone who obviously works at the University of Guelph, and we talked about the university's background and somebody who studies rural Canada, uh, specifically here in, in Southern Ontario, do you feel that uh, as you're doing your research, the disappearance of parts of certainly rural Ontario, but across the country, this decline of family farming, uh, people migrating more and more to the cities, how does that potentially influence the way you think about your work and your research or the research and the output in and of itself? Well, it certainly encouraged me, encourages me to try to save it, to save these documents from the past and to, and to study the past as it is, as you say, disappearing this way of life. And, uh, you know, I teach rural history at the University of Guelph and uh, students no longer know how to read cursive writing. And so the Rural Diary Archive provides them with an opportunity to learn how to read uh, 19th century and early 20th century cursive script. And for those who may go on and do research, 
the diaries will now be digitized and transcribed. So if they don't know how to read cursive, the original documents are still available to them in printed form. And so I think that's really important. And the other project I've been involved in is the People's Archive of Rural Ontario. And there too, we are trying to preserve aspects of rural culture that are declining and disappearing quickly. And it's a place where rural people can tell their stories about the past and about current situations, too. It's a place, in a sense, where they can um, tell the stories they want. And it is hope, hopefully urban people read these stories and get a better sense of, of what rural Canada, rural Ontario is like. It's present concerns and it's past experiences. Yeah, very well said, because urban Canada doesn't exist, can't survive without rural Canada. And the food we eat, uh, the the clothes we wear, like a, a lot of stuff comes from rural Canada. And it's certainly necessary that the, the people in urban Canada understand the challenges, both past and present, of the agriculture community, the rural communities across the country. Uh, and this book is just one of the great ways that they can do that, that you have produced, uh, Catherine. So again, it is Being Neighbors, Cooperative Work in Rural Culture, 1830 to 1960. We mentioned as well the Rural Diary Archive, the People's Archive of Rural Ontario. I will link to those in the show notes as well as a, a link to the book. But Catherine, you're also involved with the Rural History Roundtable, 21 years in uh, business there at the University of Guelph doing the Rural History Roundtable, one of the longest speaker series that I can think of at a university. It's on tap here for the uh, spring session of the Rural History Roundtable. Well, um, we're starting off with uh, my book launch on January the 25th. And then we have the scholar uh, Matthew Hatvani coming uh, to talk about digital humanities work that he's doing on a particular diary from Prince Edward Island that he has been studying. Um, he's going to be looking at it um, geographically and a kind of environmental history. Then we have uh, Maddie uh, Hendricks, who has been working on Roselva Goebel's diary, and she's looking at how this 19th century farm woman used her diary over various stages of her life cycle and how her writing and her her writing and her depiction of herself change over time then we have uh, Matthew Doherty coming to talk about missionaries working in rural Ontario and their view of the land and indigenous people so we've got a nice lineup for the winter session 2023 yeah, absolutely. That's a wonderful lineup for sure. And again, we will link to everything down in the show notes, the Rural Diary Archive, People Archive, People's Archive of Rural Ontario, the Rural History Roundtable, as well as, of course, Being Neighbors, Cooperative Work and Rural Culture, 1830 to 1960. Catherine Wilson, congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure. So there you have it, my chat with Catherine Wilson. And as I said, check the show notes down below for links to not only the book, but her archival projects as well. So with that, let's get right into today's historical headline of the week. 
which comes from Dalhousie University. Dal News from August 23rd, 2022. Why many Atlantic Canadian farmers struggle to adopt high-tech solutions and what can be done to change that. In my conversation with Catherine, she mentioned that new technology did not necessarily reduce labor for farmers and how different machines could actually potentially even increase the amount of labor. And that certainly was a barrier to entry for some in the agricultural business to invest in new technologies. But there's also the financial reality of new technology, the need to educate people on how to use new technologies, whether it's in terms of the actual use of a new piece of technology or potentially repairs where in some rural settings, it might be difficult to access someone who has existing knowledge on how to repair a piece of equipment. So you yourself have to learn how to do it. There are just many barriers to entry, barriers to adoption of new technologies. And this article from Dalhousie not only explores what those barriers to adoption are, but also the efforts that are currently ongoing to make tech attainable for farmers in Atlantic Canada, which to a certain extent is like a cooperative bee. It's not the same, not everyone's showing up on the same day, but there's a spirit of cooperation that permeates throughout these efforts to make technology more accessible, more available to agricultural producers. And as I was reading this, it made me think that for as much as the specifics of cooperative work have changed, as I said, you might not have the same bees the way they used to, where everyone's showing up and we're raising a barn in one day. The spirit of cooperation, looking out for your neighbor, ensuring that everybody has what they need in order to produce, that still exists throughout rural Canada. So that is why this week's historical headline of the week is why many Atlantic Canadian farmers struggle to adopt high-tech solutions and what can be done to change that. And with that, I will thank you for listening, everybody. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcasts, do likes, ratings, comments, all that stuff helps us grow, helps other people find us. Of course, you can head on over to activehistory.ca for all of our episodes, all the other great material over there. And if you want to follow along with what we're doing, we're at What's Old Is News on Twitter. And I am at the Sean Graham. So if you have ideas, you can let me know there. Or What's Old Is News at gmail.com. I look forward to talking with you again next week for more What's Old Is News.